1: Welcome to Deep State Radio. This is Rosa Brooks. I'm standing in today for David Rothkopf, who's been struck down in his prime by his second dose of the COVID vaccine. Um, apparently, getting the second dose of COVID vaccine is a whole lot better than getting COVID, but apparently it's also not a walk in the park. So David is home recuperating, and, and I'm picturing him, you know, all bundled up in bed with a thermometer in his mouth and a, you know, a scarf tied around his head and jaw or something um <laughs> however deep state radio must go on so today we have most of our usual monday regular crew we have the new york times's david sanger who is live from his snowshoes in vermont david are you with
0: I, us? I, I i certainly am you know i realized as i was coming down the mountain here that we have done deep state radio broadcasts. So you've done them from the bottom of nuclear silos. And uh, and Corey, of course, has done it while fleeing burning forests in <laughs> California. But I don't think that we have done one before while one of the participants was snowshoeing.
1: I, I think you're right about that, David. And, and our listeners can't see you, but but I can. And it looks like it's snowing. Is it entirely it, it is snowing to be it's, out in a
0: blizzard? It's beautiful out here. It's just a nice light Vermont snow. No, if you're in Vermont this isn't a blizzard.
1: Oh wow, okay. If you're this in is like every, This is like this is everyday, li-
0: this that would is be everyday life. This is everyday life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, in Washington this would this would like, you know, bring all traffic to a halt.
1: And yeah. and Cory uh Corey is joining us however from her <laughs> hot tub in sunny California, right
2: Corey,
0: <laughs>
2: I am indeed
1: in sunny California. All right, well, guys, it was it was kind of a quiet weekend, wasn't it? I mean, nothing nothing happened this weekend.
0: No big deal. Just your you know usual impeachment. I mean, we've in my time in Washington, which has only been uh, twenty six years, I've already had gone through three impeachments, three of the nation's four impeachments. And so no, it, it was kind of year. normal. Yeah, yeah, and two in the past year. If but we're keep speeding up, up the pace. Yeah. Uh, um.
1: Well. Um. So let's talk about the impeachment for a few minutes. I mean, um, was it a big fat nothing burger? I, I, it obviously came out exactly the way we knew it would come out, which is to say that Trump was acquitted because we knew that there would not be enough Republican votes uh, in the Senate to convict him. Um, so should we all should we all be saying, okay, why did we waste our time? Uh, why did we waste our time with this this theater over the weekend? Or or does this is this going to have some enduring impact, David?
0: I would argue that it had more impact than I expected that it would. That, yes, we knew the outcome, although I would say more Republicans voted for conviction than I expected and I suspect than some of the party leaders expected. Second, I think that the case that was laid out about what happened in the run-up to January 6th and what happened on January 6th and the rather skillful use of video the use of the um, statements of those who have been arrested, uh, that they were following President Trump's orders. And then the pictures of the police who were being, you know, crushed in the doors and all that made it pretty hard for the party of law and order to maintain that they weren't giving a pass here on law and order. And I think made all of the viewers sort of think, Imagine for a moment that this had been a protest on the left, that it had been Antifa, you know, or it had been, uh, let's say, would we be hearing the same thing about the same behavior? And I I don't think so. And you saw the pain in the Mitch McConnell uh, vote, where he voted uh, for acquittal on the rather thin basis that you couldn't impeach a president who already left office when we've had non presidential impeachments for people who left office, and then goes out to excoriate President Trump for leading the and encouraging and inciting the January 6th events. And in, in his own wording was very closely parallel to Jamie Raskin, the lead House manager's wording.
1: Corey, what is, what is your take?
2: So I, too, am deeply disappointed that only seven Republicans and not the 17 it would have taken to get to a two-thirds majority in the Senate, uh, voted to convict President Trump on what seemed to me a very clear-cut and severe case, deserving, uh, deserving conviction. I'm trying to be grateful that seven Republicans um, didn't vote their partisanship. But it's it's deeply discouraging to me that so clear cut and extreme a case wasn't enough to do a big to deal a bigger dent to the partisanship. I absolutely agree, though, that twice. I mean, President Trump will go down in history as the only American president twice brought to impeachment for his conduct in office. And yeah. I think that's really important. It does set him in a different category uh, than anybody else. It does emphasize that there was a broad acknowledgement that he posed a different kind of threat to our country than other American presidents posed. And I think that is really significant.
1: Well. How so, though? I mean, I mean, does this does this leave us does this leave American democracy stronger or weaker? Right? I mean, it it seems like on the one hand you could say, well, look, even seven Republicans voted voted to convict, and of the Republicans who didn't vote to convict, a significant number of them, including obviously former Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, I love saying that. Um, in, you know, excoriated Trump for his conduct, even though they didn't vote to convict. You know, do we come away from this saying, okay, clearly the United States is is turning its back definitively on Trump and Trumpism and, and rejecting all the forces that brought him into power? Uh, or, or do we read this as a failure for democracy, as a, as a huge setback? And, you know, saying even those unbelievably powerful Video footage of uh, you know enraged pro-Trump mobs, you know, trying to crush police officers to death and doors and things like that, you know, it was none of it was enough. It just wasn't enough that that Trump support is so deeply entrenched that that even that incredibly graphic footage, even all of the evidence of the advance planning and the degree to which Trump himself uh, motivated and egged on this mob, it, it wasn't enough. Um, I, I mean, I, I want to believe that this is a, a happy thing, but it's it's really so, hard not to, not to think that this is the setting. I think a it's, for- it's a very, oh,
0: it's a very it's mixed a ha- bag.
1: Oh. David, uh, I see you've now moved into a moving vehicle, so so let's so let Corey answer <laughs> so that you can remember yeah. and then we'll return to you. No,
0: it's not moving, so, it's seated. Yes. So, so <laughs> I,
2: I agree that American democracy is weaker because the president wasn't convicted on a very clear cut case. And I think American democracy is weaker because Mitch McConnell so obviously believes the case but declined to vote for it. Um, And I think that is true, not just of the former Senate majority leader, but of quite a number of Republicans. And um, I have just been reading Abraham Lincoln's 1838 speech, the one famous for his, the passage that says, "If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide." And you know, he he was that was his first public speech. He was only 28 years old. The occasion that precipitated it was a Black man being burned alive in St. Louis. And uh, if you'll indulge me, Rosa and David, I want to read a short passage from it because it, it I think, captures why this is such a dangerous moment for the United States and how destructive it was for the Senate not to convict the president. Lincoln's, what Lincoln's speech was about, was the country's descent into mob violence. Mm -hmm. He writes, there is even now something of ill omen amongst us. I mean, the increasing disregard for law which pervades the country, the growing disposition to substitute the wild and furious passions in lieu of the sober judgment of courts and the worse than savage mobs for the execution of ministers of justice. By instances of the perpetrators of such acts going unpunished, the lawlessness in spirit are encouraged to be lawless in practice. And mm. I think that's why you're right to be, to be very concerned about this. What the Senate Republicans did was allow lawlessness in spirit to become encouragement of lawlessness in practice. And so if we are going to contain and diminish this danger, we still have a lot of work to do. And the Senate should have done that, should have made a bigger contribution to that. David.
0: So um, Corey's uh, right. All of those things that Lincoln warned us of in 1838. Um, Live on in uh, in the issues today. I think it was a pretty mixed bag the way it all ended up. And the reason for that, I would say, that is is this: on the one hand, as I said, you did have seven Republicans who joined. On the other hand, you immediately saw that back home they were censored by their own state Republican parties, and what that tells you is that while those who were in the room were pretty horrified by what happened, and even those who voted to acquit Trump, you know, described their terror as they saw everybody rush into the, to the Capitol and they saw the rioters, um, that back home it was considered to be, uh, by the local Republican parties, to be a huge um, uh, act of betrayal. And that tells you that we're missing something still here, which is um, the profiles and courage of those who would stand up for the Constitution before party, and that's of course, the struggle of the Republican Party. Now, parties, both Democrats and republicans have have um, gone through such splits before. But I think what's really striking about this moment is that those who admitted that, uh, like Mitch McConnell, that the president did incite the riot uh, or prompted it along or failed to act to stop it, and then also voted for acquittal, were um, not really able to go explain what the current Republican Party stands for. Is it a party that is about loyalty to Trump? Is it a party that is about loyalty to the Constitution? Is it a party about traditional Republican ideas, whether it's low taxes or anti-communism or standing up to Russia and China. And what I've found striking in all of this is that there seem to be a big group of Republicans right now who actually can't get beyond the Trump years, even though they recognize that Trump is no longer president. And maybe they're harboring the thought that he will run again. I think after what we saw and what we heard, it would be a pretty difficult thing for him to go do.
1: You know, um, Corey, uh, the speech from Lincoln that that you read, a very powerful excerpt from, um, was also quoted by Nancy Pelosi, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, in a letter, a Dear Colleagues letter that she sent um, to other members of Congress urging them to co-sponsor legislation she's drafted uh, that would give the congressional Gold medal to the U.S. Capitol Police and the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department uh, for the actions of uh, their officers on January 6th in protecting the Capitol, and um, I couldn't help. Well, and, and you quoted much more powerful sections of that speech than she did. She only quoted the first few lines that you that you began with. Um, but but as you know, my fixation right now is is on policing um, and. One of the things- I was
2: just gonna throw the question back on you, Rosa, <laughs> because well, I think it's a very mixed record that the Capitol Police yeah. have on January 6. But you're our expert. Well,
1: what what I was sort of thinking, no, I mean, I mean, on the one hand, the as an institution, in terms of leadership, um, the Capitol Police it was a it was a dismal failure on January 6. Clearly. You know that the the failure to heed any of the numerous numerous warnings that violence aimed at Congress was extraordinarily likely um, is inexcusable. I mean, it, and and it's just stunning. I mean, you knew, I knew, David knew that those threats were out there, and the notion that the Capitol Police somehow was taken aback and astonished by this is just a stunning failure. Um, um, and obviously also, I mean, th- and this is not. Just the fault of the Capitol Police, but the the juxtaposition of the images of heavily military militarized police responses to the summer's racial justice protests um, with these images of Capitol Police officers in a couple of cases, at least, sort of taking selfies with the crowd and. And, you know, the lightly guarded perimeters um, of a genuinely violent mob, you know, unlike the summer's racial ju- racial justice protests, which were largely peaceful. You know, it was clear this one was not. Um, I mean, that's those are terrible failures. Um, that said, obviously, on an individual level, there were there were scores of Capitol police officers and D.C. Metropolitan police officers who who really fought very courageously, despite being badly outnumbered. Um, against the mob to protect yeah. the Capitol to protect members of Congress, and so Nancy Pelosi uh, and I'll, I'll actually read you a quote from her her letter to her colleague. She she wrote that the members of Capitol Police and MPD uh, risked and gave their lives to save ours. Um, they these martyrs for democracy they're martyrs for democracy and the outstanding heroism patriotism of our heroes deserves and demands our deepest appreciation and one of the things that really struck me is you know this is kind of a turnaround uh for for police you know it's been a it's been a rough year from the you know police have not looked good very much at all in recent years um um, and, you know, back in June, we saw we saw cities and and all over America with p- political re- leaders talking about defunding the police and so on. And now all of a sudden, and, and in fact, we had Nancy Pelosi pledging over the summer uh, to sponsor legislation that would dismantle systemic racism and end police brutality. And now here we have Nancy calling police officers martyrs, martyrs for democracy. Um, I'm curious to know what you guys think. Is this how is this going to change? Is this going to change how Americans think about policing? And then I actually want to shift to sort of thinking about how all of this, both the impeachment, the events of January six, the discourse on policing, uh, is playing is resonating in other parts of the world. Corey,
2: I'm skeptical that the behavior of some heroic Capitol police on January six is going to erase the everyday experience that so many Black Americans in particular, but other Americans have with the police they're in direct contact with. So so no, I don't think, uh, I, I can see where the Speaker of the House would see the reprehensible behavior of the violent insurrectionists on January 6th beating and killing a cop, putting out the eye of another one, would be politically advantageous to highlight the hypocrisy of Republican support for law and order and and support for the police. But no, I don't think it's going to be a strong enough factor to, for example, not make a Black man fearful when pulled over for a routine traffic stop. Nor should it.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. And uh, I would say that the effects are more political on the Democratic Party than they are uh, out on the street and the level of fear that people have. And I think Corey's got that exactly right. The the difference in the Democratic Party is, except in some precincts of uh, Portland, you don't hear very much about defund the police anymore. And you've never heard it from Joe Biden. And I think what this has done and what the the scenes of the police defending the Capitol have done is it's brought the Democratic Party more over to the Biden position here. Mm -hmm. And it's brought Nancy Pelosi over to that position. And if you find some hypocrisy with the Democrats from uh, uh, last summer, uh, yeah, I think there's some hypocrisy there. Um, but I think that sort of pales compared to the question of how the Republicans who um, voted to acquit um, might have handled this if, in fact, um, Trump had persuaded them that this wasn't from supporters who were out there um, storming the Capitol, that it was, uh, in fact, the left. And you saw that in the Kevin McCarthy phone call with Trump, where Trump sort of denying that there are people and, you know, everybody's out there saying, well, look, they're they're carrying Trump signs. They're wearing Trump, you know, MAGA hats. And um, that was a pretty stunning reconstruction, those phone calls, making it clear that the president knew this was being done on his behalf and was unwilling to call it.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, let me ask a different question. Um, how do you think the rest of the world is going to react to this? And does it, does it matter? Will it, will it strengthen Biden's hand uh and the ability of the United States to get things done in terms of foreign policy? Will it will does it does it weaken our hand? I mean. Obviously, the events of January sixth themselves, I think the the rest of the world was just watching in in astonished horror. Uh, you know, as it became apparent that the so-called, you know, uh, land of the free and the you know, the leader of the free world, we we couldn't we couldn't even keep our own seat of government safe from marauding mobs egged on by our own outgoing president it was just you know just stunning and i think i think all of us are still kind of reeling from that and and overseas the reaction was sort of shock and horror as well but now that we are you know over a month away from the events of january 6th you know now that biden has taken office now that we have gone through the second impeachment of donald trump which which on the one hand you know laid out this f- for the for the record you know laid out the clear evidence of of Trump's complicity in the events of January 6th, but also did not result in his conviction. What does this do to the U.S.'s global standing? What does this do to Biden's ability to get things done? Does, does Does it weaken him? Does it strengthen him in any ways? Or is it just irrelevant at this point? And Corey, what do you
2: think? So I do think um, both the January 6th insurrection and the failure of the Senate to convict weaken the United States in the world. Um, I think, though, that it may actually strengthen the hand of President Biden because America's friends in the world so desperately want us to be better than this and are trying so hard to be helpful. I mean, if you look at the way the statements made by America's closest allies in the aftermath of January 6th, you know, the foreign minister of Australia condemning the violence and reminding us of the vibrancy and structural strength of American democracy. Um, Even the president of France, who has a much more shall we say, frenemy kind of relationship with the United States, not the country of France. I mean, the president of France having that um, said essentially the same thing. So I think America, the United States created an international order uh, where we are not the only beneficiary, but perhaps the major beneficiaries are middle-sized liberal powers who benefit from predictable rules-based order and American strength. And they're desperately worried uh, about a United States where, you know, public health officials live in fear of mobs Um, and they're trying to be, yeah, they're trying to help shore up the, the best impulses and best practices of the United States to the extent they can. And so I think that may actually be beneficial for President Biden, because they're not gonna wanna deal him setbacks.
0: David? I agree that it could be beneficial to President Biden, but he's got three things to accomplish first. When you talk to administration officials about their engagement with China or Russia or Iran, any of the adversaries, who they know will have already been taking advantage of this and running the tape of January 6th over and over and saying, oh, this is what the vaunted American democracy looks like. They know that for Biden to get any of his international agenda going and to restore the stature of the United States, he has to do three things at home. The first and obvious one is tame the pandemic. I mean, the very fact that the most medically advanced country in the world has gotten ranks among one of the worst uh, numbers on infections and so forth, uh, was embarrassing enough. Um, The second thing he's got to do is solve the economic crisis that grew out of the pandemic. But the third thing is he's got to show not that he's solved the divide in America. Everybody understands why the United States is a divided country, but that, that we are dealing with that division and that we are dealing with it in a constitutional and legal framework. And that's the real unpredictable here. You know, we can pretty well map out when the, um, uh, vaccines are done. If, if Rothkoff left us any, right. Uh, we can, <laughs> we can, we can pretty well understand, uh, you know, what the economic cycles are and, and, you know, we only see a pathway to recovery. But we don't know for certain whether, as the House managers said in their closing arguments, uh, whether this was a one-off event or we will look back at January 6th as a start of a new era of political violence driven by right-wing extremism and driven by an unwillingness to accept the outcome uh, of an election—something uh, we have not seen in this country—in you know till back before that 1838 speech that Corey was reading before—and that's the big unknown here. You know, have we nipped this in the bud, or is this just the start? And if I could answer that question, you know, uh, I'd feel a lot more confident. On the question of whether or not we can restore our position of global leadership.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, talk about how Biden's doing. Um, uh, you know, if you were going to give him a grade on his foreign policy uh, actions so far, Corey, what would it be, and why?
2: Uh, it would be incomplete because he hasn't really done much so far. Uh, no, that's not fair. I mean, rejoining the Parrots Climate Accords was a big statement. Um, and it looks to me like he's handling it adroitly. That is to defang the domestic conversation by saying green energy is job creation and it's how we compete with China. Um, so so I think my inclination to give him an incomplete was in fact prejudicially unfair to something that I'm very much in favor of, which is barring competence. Yeah. And so I need to retrain my own reflexes. I mean, admittedly,
1: to- it's only been about three weeks or whatever, right? But, <laughs> but how
2: what's his what's his still- grade
1: so far in his first three weeks? Yeah, got to a good start. Or any major oh. any major unforced errors so far, or doing well.
2: I think he's off to a reasonable start. I think uh, I would prefer to see the Defense Department um, in addition to the attention it is putting to issues like racism in the ranks and removing um, all sorts of uh, important social policies. I would also love to see the secretary and the department focused on fighting and winning the nation's wars. And I think they've got the balance of the message. What war wrong.
1: Trump ended them all? I thought Trump ended all
2: of the But I think on foreign policy, it's wonderful to see not just the engagement the president has taken with America's allies, but even the careful competent sequencing of the telephone calls he made. Right, first to Canada, then to Mexico, then to uh, allies in Asia and Europe, so that you can see them telegraphing. Mm-hmm. Here are the, here is the lexical importance of the relationships the United States engages in. I think that's terrific, um, and uh, I'm a little bit more worried. I love their emphasis on human rights returning to being a major element of American foreign policy, but I'm a little bit worried about the gap I think I see so far between rhetoric and policy levers. And I'm also a little bit worried that they will continue the, uh, the overemphasis on economic sanctions as the primary lever of American uh, punitive actions towards states. So I would
0: agree with a good deal of Corey's statement, including especially the over-reliance on sanctions. And you saw that in the Myanmar announcements. I mean, we re-sanctioned a group of generals who the Trump administration had already sanctioned for their treatment of the rain. But by and large, I think that they had thought this thing through pretty well. And I think of all of those phone calls that Corey mentioned, the most important one was the last one. It was Xi Jinping. And uh, it came last week and uh, it lasted for two hours. Now, even allowing for translation, that's a pretty long call. I want to know whether it was
1: a Zoom. I want to know whether it was a call
0: or a Zoom. (laughs) I am told it was a call. But yes, the body language would have been pretty interesting to see.
1: Yeah, I I was actually thinking now that we have all learned how to use Zoom. (laughs) I mean, I can I can remember even in my most recent stint in government. That whenever you try to do a secure video conference, it didn't actually work (laughs) as well as Zoom. No, it really just would have changed. And you would think it would actually be of enormous value to to diplomats and leaders to be able to look at each other. But I guess they didn't want to do that.
2: Yeah,
0: maybe not. So but here's what was interesting about it was that, um, you know, the conversations until um, the uh, China virus, as President Trump used to call it, hit, his conversations with Xi were basically all about the transaction. Look, I'll forget about mm-hmm. Hong Kong or I'll forget about your treatment of the Muslim minorities uh, as long as we can strike our trade deal. And my understanding of this call, and we're still learning a fair bit about it, is that there was none of that. There was, here are our big national objectives and our national values, and um, don't kid yourself if you're um, breathing your own Chinese fumes here that everything you've seen happen uh, in the United States means that we are a down and out declining power because you guys made that mistake after Vietnam and you've made that mistake at various other points in history and you'd be making it again. Now, how much of that is bravado? I don't know um it is certainly true that the Chinese have used the past few years while President Trump was in to compete with the United States and to push back aggressively in all territories, right mm-hmm. military build up, territorial claims trade uh my favorite of cyber um, they have had the the pedal to the metal all the way through and uh, this was the beginning of an effort by uh, President Biden to slow that. And the big question is, can he? Has it gone too far at this point? Does he have the runway in four years to reverse that the course of that while he's trying to deal with COVID and the economic crisis and the racial issues uh, and, the, and the political divide? That's a pretty long list at home. Of uh, to see whether or not he's got the bandwidth. And and she is clearly betting that he does not.
1: Um, let me raise another issue that looks like it's going to be a really tough one for, for Biden, uh, Afghanistan. Um, Biden is on record saying that he intends sometime during his first term to, and as quickly as possible, withdraw all remaining uh, combat troops from Afghanistan, just leaving a small, unspecified in size, but somehow small um counter-terrorism strike capacity. Um and obviously we we the the peace talks between the US and the Taliban. Uh the Taliban have certainly not been living up to their end of the deal. The David Yurne newspaper is, is reporting uh that the Taliban are are encroaching on major cities throughout Afghanistan. Uh, and it does seem very, very likely that if the U.S. pulls all of its troops out, um, that the Afghan government really could fall um, or or at any rate have even greater difficulty than it's already had in governing. Do, do you think, Corey, that Biden is going to be able to keep his pledge to bring U.S. troops finally out of Afghanistan? One thing that he and Trump very much did have in common was the desire to do that um, with you know most quibbles over how to do it responsibly and in a, in a, in a paced manner. Or do you think the situation is so bad that it's going to become impossible for him to keep that promise?
2: Uh, I do not believe he will keep that promise and not because the situation is intolerable, uh, but because I think it was a... I do think you're right that it is President Biden's genuine belief that we shouldn't be involved in Afghanistan other than counterterrorism. But I think the same law of gravity that, uh, that pulled President Obama off that course and pulled President Trump off that course will also pull President Biden off that course which is if all you're doing is counterterrorism, you are not gonna have the cooperation of the government of Afghanistan or other governments uh, to be able to do that effectively. That the training uh, and cap- capability improvements to the forces of Afghanistan are going to be essential to us offloading the responsibilities. Uh, and I think you can already see signs that the uh, Biden administration is rethinking it, right? They made a statement about, how, about the importance of, uh, of uh, not letting timelines draw your withdrawal, but conditions-based withdrawal. And of course the main condition is that the Taliban have not honored Mm -hmm. uh, their part of the agreement to cease attacks. And so I think that's gonna be the escape valve from the political promise because uh, it's super popular to blame the Taliban because they deserve it. Um, And so I think I had originally thought that uh, Trump's reckless decision to pull out of Afghanistan without even consulting American allies was gonna be a huge gift to the Biden administration, which would want to do the very same thing. But I think allies concerns um, and the conditions on the ground are gonna cause them to slow this way down and hopefully turn the pressure way up on the government of Afghanistan about its corruption and find ways to introduce greater transparency um, in governance in Afghanistan, which is legitimating the Taliban, because that's the piece of it we don't have right.
1: Mm. Well, as like most of Trump's gifts to Biden, this one turns out to be something of a poison pill. But David, what what is, what is your take on this? And do you think that if Biden uh, doesn't keep his pledge to pull remaining U.S. troops out, Uh, Will he will there be a domestic price to pay or do people not actually care that much?
0: Rosa, I'm not sure at this level they they actually care that much because we're not taking casualties. And that's the main thing. And the reason we're not taking casualties is the American troops are staying on their base. And the reason that they are staying on their base is that they're basically doing counterterrorism issues and intelligence gathering from the base and then sending in missions or airstrikes. Uh, but you're not hearing significant casualties, and that's taking the political pressure off of it. Um, The reporting we've done on this, and I I think you'll be reading more about this in in coming days, suggests that at this point, um, President Biden is a little bit haunted by the fear that if they do take out the remaining number of troops, which is 2,500 Americans, I think there are about 5,500 other NATO troops that are there. So we're in the odd situation where we've got the fewer number of troops at this point. Um, if he does take them out and Kabul falls, mm-hmm. that will dominate the first year or year and a half of this presidency, right? It will look like yeah. um, the We're fall of Saigon in, in 74, yeah. right? And so um, he certainly doesn't want that image. But 2,500 troops, which is what we've got there now, is not enough to do the various other tasks beyond counterterrorism that Corey was discussing. It's not enough to go train the um, Afghan government how to do things. We don't have a whole lot of, of leverage over the corruption in the Afghan government that Corey has rightly says has got to get cured. And so I think the bigger fear that he runs into is not that what happens if you keep the 2,500 troops? I don't think it would be the end of the world. It wasn't the end of the world for Obama. Um, I think the problem is how would you come up with a set of criteria about when you actually would fully withdraw? Or do you simply admit yeah. then that we're there for the duration? Yeah. And you know what? Some, there's another factor out here. So far the Taliban have not attacked those 2500 troops. They have recognized that that would, you know, bring in more of the US presence. But if we stay beyond May 1st, mm-hmm. who's to say that the Taliban are going to say, oh, well, that's okay. We'll continue our restraint and not target. And so part of the difficulty that Biden has to consider is not a do you stay or go with 2,500. It's if you stay, is 2,500 going to be enough to protect your presence?
2: That's a great
1: point, David. No, we're we're a little bit in the worst of all possible worlds right now where we have uh, too much to too much committed to easily leave without, without being seen as bearing responsibility if there's a catastrophe, and too few troops committed to do much of anything to stave off uh, catastrophe.
0: Yeah, it's, it's the classic foreign policy sunk cost issue here. Yep. We've been there for mm-hmm. 20 years. If you had to go write a book about what it is you accomplished or what you would see 10 years from now um, that was the result of the American presence in Afghanistan, it'd be a pretty short book.
1: Yep. Yep. Uh Well, on that cheerful note, I think (laughs) it's time to wrap up this podcast um, because we are out of time. So we're going to have to keep close track of this particular challenge along with all of the others in the, in the weeks and months to come. Um, But it's going to be David Rothkopf's problem figure out how to pretend that we're making sense of it once he recovers from COVID vaccine number two. So thank you, Corey. Thank you, David. And we'll see you all in just about a week. Thank Thanks,
2: you for Rosa. your leadership, Rosa.
1: It's, it's, a, it's been a challenge, but I, I, you know, I feel like...
0: <laughs> it's an incorrigible group, I recognize. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. See you next week.